Welcome to another episode of Reformation Roundtable. My name is Joe Stout, and you are joining us on episode number 15 of our desire and vision to plant a Reformed church here in the Lewis County area of Washington State. If you are interested in joining us on this mission, we are looking to build a distinctly Reformed church. We don't want this to be a Reformed church that, uh, oh, somewhere in some bylaws back 50 years ago, we talked about uh, the Reformation and how it matters, or the sovereignty of God and how it matters. No, we want to lead with the good news that God is sovereign over everything, the primary good news being that he's sovereign over our hearts. And that is what Reformation Roundtable is all about. We have previously done several episodes on the doctrines of grace and God's sovereignty and why it matters. And we've moved into an area that has less unity within the Reformed world, but the doctrines of eschatology. We've done several different talks on eschatology, and today we're going to continue that with a lecture from R.C. Sproul on the difference between literal interpretation and figurative interpretation and how those two must intermingle and what they mean, actually giving some definitions of both things. It's a really, really powerful and very um, important discussion to have, oftentimes in the discussion of eschatology. One side will accuse the other side of being liberal because they don't take things literally where they feel like they should take them literally. And R.C. Sproul does a good job of of explaining to us, the listeners, that uh, we either have to take everything literally, we have to take everything figuratively, or there is a mix of the two. And how do we go about figuring out what should be taken literally and what should be taken figuratively. Uh, Again, if you'd like to join us in our quest to build a Reformed Church here in Lewis County, we would welcome you to uh, reach out. You can get get a hold of me by emailing me, joecstout at gmail.com. This is on our website right now, which is lewiscounty.church, not .com, .church, lewiscounty.church. Leave a message there. Or you can, you can text me or call me, 360-520-5440. Uh, during the summer, we've been meeting a lot less regularly with people's uh, schedules. We've been meeting more around once a month. Uh, last one was in June. This, uh, this particular one was in July. This particular discussion happened in July. We won't probably have another one until August sometime. Uh, but we are very passionate and very motivated to build a church here in Lewis County. We'd love to have you join us. But for now... I hope you enjoy this teaching by R.C. Sproul and the discussion that follows afterwards. In our last session of our study of the last days, you will recall that I went through Mark's version of the Olivet Discourse, and we saw all of the elements that were contained in that future prophecy that Jesus gave to his disciples about the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, and then all of the signs of the times that he enumerated, and then concluding with his prediction of his coming in clouds of glory, after which he indicated that that generation would not pass away until all of these things would uh, be fulfilled. And we've looked at some of the critical problems that we face with respect to the time frame that Jesus attaches to all of these things that are included in the Olivet Discourse. And we recall that the time frame that Jesus gave was in direct response to the question raised by his disciples to him when they said, when 
will these things take place? Now, in trying to deal with all of the material that is found in the Olivet Discourse, the first thing we have to wrestle with is our principle of biblical interpretation that we apply to the text. And one of the most important principles of biblical interpretation is that called the sensus literalis. That is often interpreted or translated by the words, the literal sense of Scripture. Now that's somewhat misleading because in the way in which people popularly use the term literal translation, they mean by that that things take place, they come to pass in exact measure according to what was written in the Scripture. Whereas the concept of literal interpretation, as it was first set forth in the Reformation, meant that the Bible is always to be interpreted according to the sense in which it is written. Namely, that there are some forms of literary uh, structure in the Bible that are written in a sense of historical narrative, other times we encounter the form of poetry. Some language we find is, is ordinary historical language. Other language is figurative or metaphorical. Now, to keep that in mind, I want to look at the elements in the Olivet Discourse, and we'll use, again, Mark's version as a guide today. And I'm going to make a distinction between ordinary and figurative language. Now, what I mean by ordinary language is what some folks mean by literal interpretation. That is, that the, the, the text means exactly what it seems to suggest that it's saying in the ordinary use of words. Figurative language is when there's a symbolic element in the speech pattern or the literary form that is being used. Now, if we look at Mark 13 and the Olivet Discourse, we basically have three options in front of us on how to interpret the Olivet Discourse. The first option is to assume, this will be option number one, that the whole discourse is to be understood according to interpretation using ordinary language or what is normally called literal language. That's one option. A second option is the whole thing is figurative or metaphorical. And the third would be that it uses partly literal language or partly ordinary language. So some part is ordinary, and the other part would be figurative. Those are basically the options that we have as we come to that text and seek to interpret it. Now, those critics that we have examined so far who have used the Olivet Discourse as a lever to attack biblical 
trustworthiness and even the uh, accuracy of the prophecy of Jesus himself have applied ordinary literal language to the whole of the Olivet Discourse. And they see that certain parts of, of the discourse did take place according to the predictions, namely when Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple in simple ordinary language, that's exactly what happened in recorded history. And likewise, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem happened according to the ordinary language that Jesus uses in the Olivet Discourse. But if we apply ordinary language to the third critical aspect or dimension of the content of the prophecy, namely Jesus' return in glory at the end of the age, the critics say, that has not taken place literally. And they also give a literal interpretation to the statement, this generation will not pass away until all of these things are fulfilled. So you see then that if you take all of the elements of the Olivet Discourse and apply a literal translation to them, you have serious problems as the critics have raised. Now, I don't know anyone who would argue that all of the Olivet Discourse is given in figurative metaphorical language for the simple fact that the temple wasn't just figuratively destroyed in 70 A.D. and that Jerusalem wasn't simply figuratively devastated in 70 A.D., but it, both of these events transpired in literal fashion. So that leaves us really with the third option, which is looking at this text and seeing an interspersion here of ordinary language added to it with certain elements of figurative metaphorical language. And that's the approach I'm going to take to the text. Now the question then becomes, what part of the text do we deal with in terms of literal interpretation? And what part of the text do we deal with in terms of figurative interpretation? And that's when the, uh, the, the whole issue becomes complicated and somewhat difficult. Obviously, if we list the key elements of the discourse, the destruction of Jerusalem, of the temple, I think we would all agree that that language here is used in an ordinary, literal sense. And so we'll say literal or ordinary for the destruction of the temple. The second element is the element of the destruction of the entire city of Jerusalem. And we say that took place literally in 70 AD, and so we will assign literal uh, interpretation to that element. Well, what about the coming of Christ in glory? We're going to just put a question mark there right now. Did Jesus literally come back within this framework, or did he not? And we'll leave that question hanging for a second. And then we have the signs 
that are enumerated in there, that the disciples would be delivered up to councils, that they would be persecuted, that there would be false Christs arising, that there would be wars, rumors of war, famines, earthquakes, the appearance of the abomination of desolation, and uh, the gospel would go to all nations. Now, I'm going to separate that one out, but, but we'll say that the signs, for the most part, are understood to be taking place literally. We're talking about real earthquakes, real persecutions, real tribulation, real false messiahs, and so on. And so uh, that, for the most part, is agreed upon by biblical scholars that is to be interpreted in ordinary language or literal language. Now, the question of the gospel to all nations... is a question. And the sense and meaning of the term end of the age is a question. And, of course, one of the big questions regard the astronomical perturbations, I'm going to call those, the upheaval of the heavens that is described as a precursor of the coming of Christ. We're going to raise a question about that, and then in the final analysis, the question of this generation will not pass away. Are we to interpret that literally or figuratively? So I'm not going to spend time dealing with those portions of the Olivet Discourse about which there's little or no debate in terms of their literalness the temple, Jerusalem, the signs, other than the ones I have extrapolated. All right. Let's, uh, let's begin, since the big question has to do with the coming of Christ at the end, let's leave that one alone for a minute, and let's look at some of these other ones that have questions attached to it. First of all, what does uh, the Olivet Discourse mean when it speaks about the gospel being proclaimed to all nations before the fulfillment of the sum and substance of the Olivet Discourse. In modern Christian expectation, there are many who believe that until the gospel is literally preached to every tongue and every tribe and every people on this earth, until the gospel penetrates every nation on the globe, Christ will not return. In fact, some of the world mission enterprises are fueled by the desire to fulfill this sign to hasten the day of Christ's coming. Now, my question is twofold with respect to this particular sign. The first place, what is referred to by the nations? I don't know what the Olivet Discourse is referring to with its reference to all nations. But I can tell you this, which is an important aspect of our understanding of this text, that the phrase or the word here, nations, is used in two distinctly different ways in the New Testament. On the one hand, the word ethnoi or nations is used on occasion to refer to to Gentile nations.
but also Israel being composed of tribes was also referred to from time to time in the New Testament of the nations of Israel. So that this text could simply mean that the gospel would go to all of the tribes or nations of Israel before the fulfillment. Now remember, the link to the other passage that is in dispute when Jesus said, you will not go over all of the cities of Israel until you see the kingdom of God coming in power, and so on. But now, even though I grant that as a possibility, I don't think that that's what's in view here. I do think that this is a reference to uh, different nationalities, not just Jewish tribes or Jewish nations. So, if we mean by that that this literally has to be fulfilled, then obviously the critics have a strong uh, position here to say Jesus said that this was all going to take place within a single generation, and obviously the gospel has not gone to all nations in that time frame. However, if you go to Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul in Romans talks about the gospel having been spread abroad throughout the whole world already by the time he's writing to the Romans and he's speaking of the known world of that day, that the book of Acts and the mandate to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the, and to the, Jewish, or to the Gentile nations was already fulfilled in dramatic uh, manner by the time Paul was writing Romans and he talks about the gospel having gone out to the whole world. Now that phrase is an idiomatic expression of the people to refer to the Roman world of the day and in that case we would not interpret it literally to mean each and every single nation or tribe or tongue. So that's, that's why we have a question mark next to that phrase of the gospel to all nations. Now, the next one is also key to the whole dispute, and that is what is meant by the end of the age. And that question is so important that I'm going to spend time dealing and addressing that separately in a different lecture. Let me just say in passing that those who believe that the fulfillment of the Olivet Discourse in its entirety took place within 40 years after the pr prediction of Christ, namely within the time frame of that generation of contemporaries who heard Jesus' prophecy, believe that what Jesus is speaking about here is not the end of world history, but the end of the Jewish age, the end of the economy of redemption that focused upon the Jewish nation, which did come to an end coincidental with the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. In 70 AD, we see a decisive moment of separation of the Christian community from the Jewish community and Christianity as a world religion emerging from that crisis moment. It had been gradually moving towards that final severance that took place in 70 AD, 
And we will look, as I said, in greater detail at that later on. But just in passing, uh, again, if the end of the age means the end of the world in a literal sense, then obviously that didn't take place <laughs> within the time frame of one human generation and still hasn't taken place. All right, what about the astronomical perturbations that we find where it talks uh, in the text about the, uh, the signs in the heavens in those days, beginning in verse 24 of chapter 13 of Mark, after that tribulation the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fall, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. Now, here we're talking about what I call astronomical perturbations or visible signs, catastrophic signs, that take place in the heavens. Now, this raises a very significant question of literary style and form. For this reason, that in the Old Testament, it was not at all uncommon or unprecedented for the prophets of Israel to describe visitations of divine judgment upon the earth by using graphic imagery very similar to this imagery, indicating a catastrophic judgment brought by God upon a city or on a nation in which these uh, events were described in terms of astronomical perturbations that did not take place literally, but were prophetic forms of metaphorical language. Let me give you some examples of those uh, from my book. Uh, we read in Isaiah 13, chapter 9, or verse 9, verse 10, and verse 13, the following description of the judgment of God on the destruction of Babylon, or Tyre. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. Now pay attention to this portion. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place. Now this language is almost identical to the language that Jesus uses in the Olivet Discourse with respect to his coming. Now there are other portions in the Old Testament where we see the same kind of language that was used by Old Testament prophecies to predict God's judgment 
on and in events that have already taken place. Tyre was visited by divine wrath. Babylon has fallen, and those prophecies were already fulfilled without a literal fulfillment of these astronomical upheavals or catastrophes. Another passage is from Isaiah 34, verses 3 to 5. Here, Isaiah announces the desolation of Basra, which is the capital of Eden, and he does it in the following manner. He says, quote, The mountains shall be melted with the blood of the slain, all the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall down as a leaf falleth from off the vine, and as a falling fig from the fig tree. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven, behold, it shall come down upon Idumea. Now, this is the language employed by the prophecy of Isaiah of events that clearly did take place without a literal astronomical upheaval. So the point is this. When we come to the Olivet Discourse, as I will look at in our next session, the question is, the big issue with the Olivet Discourse is how we understand this word here, generation. This generation shall not pass away until all of these things are fulfilled. What it comes down to in simple terms is is this to be interpreted literally or figuratively? Now we've seen the astronomical perturbations. If they're interpreted literally, then the only way we can save the Olivet Discourse is to interpret this figuratively. And to look at the coming of Christ in a different way from how we're accustomed to seeing it on this occasion. In other words, in simple terms, ladies and gentlemen, something in this text has to be interpreted figuratively, and something has to be interpreted literally, or there's no way we can salvage this text from the guns of higher criticism. And so the question that remains for us to examine is what do we look at literally and what do we look at figuratively? And most critically, again, is the time frame reference of this generation. So what do we think? Mind-blowing? Very interesting, yes. Very, yeah, very interesting. The biggest problem from my perspective is not what Scripture says, not what R.C. says about it. It's the rebellion of man. Hmm. Man looks for opportunities to reject God. And some of these scriptural uh, circumstances sound like they could be mm -hmm. rejected legitimately. And if you, if you take a, a careless view of them, careless examination of them, uh, the rebellion that mm -hmm. is so prevalent amongst men is bound to come out that way. Hmm. We go into it looking for problems. Yeah. 
not looking to submit ourselves to it, yeah. but looking for ways around why we should believe it. Yeah. You've got believers and unbelievers. You've got those who are elect and those who are not. And those who are elect are eager or become eager by the work of the Spirit to accept these things and walk in them. But those who are unbelievers, they're eager to find fault. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it seems to be the, the common thread amongst maybe people rebelling against their upbringing, rebelling against the faith that, that had been passed down to them from their, from their parents or grandparents, is that they all of a sudden become these huge critics of the Bible. Yeah. But it's not huge critics out of a desire to seek truth. It's a, they become huge critics so that they can extricate themselves to from the authority of the scriptures. Right. Tim Keller, maybe I've mentioned this before, Tim Keller tells, tell, talks about how whenever he talks to a college student who is questioning their faith, he's talking to a guy who's questioning his faith and questioning the deity of Christ and the resurrection and the authority of scripture, he always asks, asks him, what's her name and how long have you been sleeping with her? Because he knows that sexual sin, or sin of any kind, but in the case of young college students, oftentimes sexual sin has caused them to experience tremendous guilt and conviction from what they know is right and what they know is wrong, and they're seeking to get out from that guilt. But not change their lifestyle, just remove themselves from the guilt. And uh, so I think you're exactly right. Rebellion is at the heart of some of the struggles in this passage. And it doesn't matter whether you're a theologian or not. Same issues apply. Yeah. Yeah, you're totally right. If you're a Christian and you're a believer and you come to, to Mark 13 and you read through Mark 13, you can't not scratch your head at some of the things Jesus is saying because it's like, it's like, I want to believe, Lord, help me, help me believe. But do we, do we agree with his basic premise that there are three possible ways to interpret Mark 13, all literally, all figuratively, or a mixture of the two? Is there, is there some fourth or fifth way of interpreting it that he, we feel like he left out? I've never thought about it. Yeah. I mean, when you see the Pharisees uh, quite continuously criticizing Jesus, oh, just for example, you know, I mean, how could there's there's nothing in the prophecy about somebody coming from Nazareth, mm-hmm. and then on our end of it, though, we're not so smart. The Pharisees weren't stupid. I mean, they were blinded, but they knew the scriptures well. But they didn't seem to understand that. Well, wait a minute. Um, let's look a little deeper into this guy's claims and his life and those that their eyes were opened Mm. um, there's no scripture that says oh yeah it does seem to appear that he was you know born in Bethlehem and he is fulfilling the all the prophecies as they've said it and there was others like that I can't think of them off the top of my head 
So I, I, when I read something like this, I'm just going, oh, I'm like Pharisee. I'm not sure what's going on exactly. Mm-hmm. But I'm not kind of going, well, I wonder if this Bible's even true. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I haven't really studied this and thought about it, and not that I would come up with answers necessarily. But I would agree with what he says. It's, yeah. It looks to me, from my first blush on kind of mm-hmm. trying to see what you're saying, that, yeah, well, that seems like... Somehow it has to be reconciled if we always approach the scriptures like, well, we know it's not wrong, so how do we figure it out and mm. understand it? Yeah. And, uh, and I saw that, and I believe the Pharisees often missed because they were set on a different thought process, you know, how can we kill him? And as soon as Paul uh, turned and became a Christian, it was how can we get people to falsely witness against him yeah. how can we kill him and uh stuff so, i mean it's that, that's pretty plain to me but uh, yeah i i haven't really thought about it hmm. joe but I, who am i to disagree with rc <laughs> <laughs> yeah well and it seems like there's a, a, when you were saying that I, I thought back to um the the disciples one of whom of course was going to betray him but the most of them were we would say weak in their faith, but faithful to him. Mm-hmm. They don't understand the things that he says or does, but it even says that they were afraid to ask him what he meant <laughs> he, because they're afraid that, that Jesus, like, you are supposed to understand this. You, you can look at the, the fig tree, it says in Mark 13, you can look at the fig tree and understand things from the fig tree. You can look at the sky and know if it's going to be good weather or bad weather. So you should be able to understand this. And so there is kind of like that, okay, well, we all are on the same page. We know this is true, whether it's supposed to be interpreted figuratively or literally. We know it's literally the Word of God. We know it's, it's, literally, go, it's literally taking place or has taken place. or um, We know it's true, but how are we to, to understand it? And I, I think he's doing a good job of, of, of bringing it up. I had a question, and it maybe is just a... Uh, an academic question at this point since there's no one here to really answer it. He says that the figurative, or, uh, the literal translation or the literal interpretation of the temple being destroyed, that people will look at Mark 13 or the Olivet Discourse and, and everybody agrees that the temple was destroyed and that Jesus' words were literally fulfilled. But I, I was wondering if some people teach that the temple has to be first rebuilt and then it can be destroyed. Uh, and that might be more of a dispensational argument to make for it, but I, but, I, but I know people talk about the temple being rebuilt again um, when they talk about kind of more mainline, left-behind type um, eschatology. But I kind of thought in my mind that... Is he saying that it's it's undisputed amongst people who maybe reject the dispensational view of pre uh, premillennialism, or is it do premillennialists of the dispensational variety also agree that yeah he talked he was talking about the temple seventy A.D. the temple got destroyed that prophecy has been fulfilled and is not going to be you know it's not something that's going to happen still because it seems like the futurist position is that this prophecies all are going to happen in the future. And so even this one would be in question. I don't know if you guys have any insight on that, but. 
Well, uh, what about the aspect, maybe I'm not tying in with you at all here because I don't understand quite, but what about the aspect of um, him saying that the temple will be destroyed in, in uh, three days it will be raised up. And mm -hmm. It's going to take 46 years. Right. And, and so nobody understood that. True. Uh, and yet in one sense it was totally literal because in one sense he was talking about him as the temple. Yeah. In the other sense, it was figuratively, if he didn't understand it then, and he's going, well, he's obviously not talking about something that took 46 years. Yeah. So what is he talking about? Yeah. And from our side, aren't we kind of saying, well, he kind of was literal. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not really answering yeah. your question, but, I right. but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to fit in somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, no, I, I don't know. I, I, he seemed to make the case that everybody was in agreement that the temple was destroyed just as Jesus said it would be, and that happened in 70 AD. But I've, I haven't heard a lot of people outside of maybe the more amillennial, post-millennial teachers teach at all on 70 AD. So it, I, I guess I could look at Romans 13 and think of an evangelical pastor who loves Jesus, preach through this and talk about how none of this has happened yet. And that things have to transpire, the temple has to be rebuilt, and then all of these things will take place. Then the, this generation will come into being. I'm not saying I, that's what I think. I'm just was curious if, if people are, if it really is as widespread that kind of unity of, of that particular thought. Um, one of the things that uh, he was talking about the the astronomical things, the astronomical disturbances that take place, and um, back in uh, back in Genesis chapter 30 Now he had, now uh, chapter 37, verse 9, now he, meaning Joseph, had still another dream and related it to his brothers. And he said, lo, I have had still another dream and behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and, and your, uh, shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come and bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in his mind. The, re the reason why that particular passage came to my mind was that as we read in Mark 13 about the... Um, in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven. Could that be... And he hasn't developed this argument at all for... if. We, I look at that and I think definitely figurative because we know literally the stars aren't going to fall. We know that the sun uh, is not going to go out. At least I don't think that's what it means literally. Um, but could it mean that he's referring symbolically to different heads, different um, royal um, heads, either kings or empires, um, Certainly in the book of Revelation, there's all sorts of talk about the sun and the moon and the stars and 
um, kingdoms and could that sun, moon, and stars be referring to kingdoms or rulers that are falling from power? Um, that, that would be just one, one, one way, I, or one Old Testament connection to using sun, moon, and stars as a very figurative sense. Because Joseph has the dream, Jacob picks up on it immediately and rebukes him immediately. He says, he doesn't, Joseph doesn't have to say, and I mean that, Dad, you're the sun and Mom's the moon and the 11 stars are my brothers. He says, and he knew exactly what he was talking about. And uh, so that, that type of figurative language seems to be second nature to the biblical, the biblical hearers, maybe, yeah. certainly the writers. Back to the uh, question of rebuilding the temple. I think that, from my perspective, that is most offensive about that is not the rebuilding of the temple, if that happens. It's all the stuff that goes with it. Reinstituting the sacrificial system, which was abomination. Yeah. Uh, so that I have no struggle at all with rejecting that whole idea. Sure. Um, And again, for people who are looking for excuses, you can always stretch it a little bit and, mm. and come up with what you want the scripture to say yeah. or mean. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, what was your whole point about the Joseph thing? I didn't really follow your, where, where you were headed with that? Uh, I think it was to connect up to the idea that um, this passage, all of the discourse has um, figurative and literal pieces to it. Yeah. And that the sun, moon, and stars aspect of it um, is very symbolic. It's very figurative. And that I'm assuming he's going to make that case too. He hasn't made it yet. Uh, I, I remember there was a guy I knew who was preaching through Revelation, and he got to Revelation 12. And Revelation 12 is all about the, the dragon in the sky doing war with the, with the woman, and a third of the stars are cast down. And, and he, I could believe all of that except for the, when the water came gushing out of that dragon's mouth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. But he was, he was approaching it with the idea that you know, all Scripture needs to be taken literally in the as R.C. said, in the ordinary sense. So if it says that a dragon's in the sky, that means literally there's going to be a dragon in the sky. And, you know, he was doing that with the, with the intent of being faithful to Scripture. And so it's, it's not like I'm thinking, oh, you theological liberal, how could you corrupt God's Word? It's like you, it's, it's kind of more of an, uh, of an Apollo maybe preaching with great skill, but incorrectly. You know, he, he loves what he's preaching. He loves the gospel. He's going out there to win souls for Christ. But he's doing it not representing the gospel correctly. And it seems like Christians who are like us, who want to be very faithful with God's word, we need to get a little bit maybe more comfortable with the idea that this symbolic language is very second nature to the writers and the hearers of the New Testament and the Old Testament. And... Um, I think that's, that's where we definitely have to look at this, at least in part, figuratively. 
Um, and I think that's where maybe more of a, uh, kind of the, maybe some more of the premillennial brothers can look at figurative interpretation and get worried. They can start thinking like, well, you're just going to symbolize the whole message away. And now Christ's death and resurrection is just symbolic and it didn't actually literally happen. And, and you know, there's kind of like that, that worry that to start interpreting things figuratively leads you down the slippery slope to theological liberalism. Um, and maybe I'm just kind of making a little bit of the, of the case that it's not at all. Maybe, that's, maybe that was my point in bringing it up. Yeah, well, I think that we're kind of, at least ways amongst the three of us, yeah. and anybody else that's not here, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, that they're, they're yeah. in order to salvage that passage as having mm-hmm. some credibility, there has to be some literal and there has to be some figurative. Sure. Um, it seems like anyways. Yeah. That was my point about the temple was that, mm-hmm. in a sense... It was completely literal, right. but nobody understood what the temple meant. Yeah, and it was, and so if we were back then, we'd be going, I don't know how this would work. Yeah, you know, I just don't get it. Yeah, but I don't think we would have ever stumbled. We might not have stumbled on. I'll say the idea. Well, maybe he's talking about his body or right. something like this. Yeah. So, so there's things like that that I think that uh, I was reading and I didn't finish it at all because I didn't want to, but it was uh, um, Dr. Martin DeHaan's book, The Second Coming of Jesus, Mm -hmm. and he was a medical doctor, but he also did a lot of preaching and started the radio Bible class and all that. He died in about 1965. Well, in 1944, he wrote the book, The Second Coming of Jesus, and as I'm looking at that book, which is almost 75 years old, I think if he had a chance to read what he wrote today, he'd be going, oh, I think I would have to change a few mm-hmm. of my perspectives on some some things. And I don't have specifics that would be of interest to tell you, but, you know, about rumors of wars and about uh, earthquakes mm-hmm. and about famines and all of that. And, and I think those have been around a long time. So mm-hmm. how you apply that kind of stuff, meaning that Jesus is just right around the corner. Right. And I feel like that's what he was trying to say. Sure. Um, I, it's a good, probably a good book and stuff and all that. But yeah. you know, I think now I'm looking at it and reading it, and I'm kind of going, well, good Bible teacher, but that's just tough stuff to tell. Right. You know, mm-hmm. And to predict the end times. and. And to hear you every once in a while talk about 5,000 years, I'm going, oh, what kind of chance? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What about 50,000 50, years? <laughs> it, not a chance. I mean, Black Lives Matter is enough to, oh, sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but some of this stuff is, uh, I mean, there is a lot of crazy upside downness and stuff. But yeah, whatever. I mean, it's... A, no, you're, you're, you're exactly right. And I think that's one of the reasons why we need to continue to have some theological um, liberty amongst brothers on this because you know you can faithfully approach the scripture and come up with some fairly different uh, ideas that are orthodox within within the history that you find yourself yeah so if you're living in the time of world war ii gosh i don't know i don't know how you don't try to see yourself in in this Mm -hmm. in you know the end times because it's like all of these nations are rising up against each other. And uh, I think it was Sam Storms uh, several weeks ago uh, 
uh, when we were doing that talk, he, he said that postmillennialism was very widespread in America until World War One, and they saw the destruction of what happened during World War One, and uh, it kind of fell out of favor because people were like, "This doesn't seem like you know the victory of the gospel." Which, you know, I would agree that that kind of death and destruction, more people died in the 20th century, we've all, we've all heard that stat, more Christians died in the 20th century than in any century prior to it, in the last 20 centuries since Christ ascended to heaven. So how can we look at that and think, like, the gospel is advancing? Well, it's, it's a long process, and we're just, I, I still think we're just getting started. We're just, this is still, the, we're still a part of the early church. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, like this uh, Dr. DeHaan, I mean, he, he was a doctor um, probably 10 years before the 1918 flu mm. pandemic. Wow. And he worked through that. Wow. And, the, and he was saying that he worked night and day for weeks. Mm. He'd never even take off his clothes. He'd wow. just go, go to work constantly. Wow. So I could see how that would influence him. Like, oh, my goodness, we're close or something. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, which is legitimate. I wouldn't, no criticism on my part sure. of it at all. Absolutely. Just, uh, uh, especially considering these. <laughs> you mean it was an actual pandemic? <laughs> yeah, it was an actual pandemic. <laughs> People actually died. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, you know, like a million <laughs> or so. No, more like... Close to 100 million. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> it was like, I think they they estimate yeah. 20 to 100 million people died. Right, right, yeah. right, right. But anyway, yeah, the yeah. number. The numbers escape me, but... The... Um, there's a lot... There's a lot in, in this that... It's funny, because I felt like he had a lot to say. I didn't feel like he was... In some of these introductory these kind of these um, talks leading up to what he's getting to say. There's a lot of lead up, but not necessarily a lot of, there's a lot of introing, but not necessarily a lot of like, let's get into the scripture. I felt like he just went through like eight different claims that Jesus made here in, in chapter 13. And it's kind of like the person that has a, 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 his, uh, a high school diploma has a very broad general knowledge of the world. And then they get a bachelor's of science and they have a little bit more you know, a little bit more specific, but much less broad. And then they get a master's and it's even more specific and even less broad. And then they get a PhD and it's kind of like just this little sliver of, uh, but they're, but they're total experts on it. And I feel like the farther he gets into this, the more, the more we see like, wow, there's a whole lot more to talk about that we could ever get to in a, in a 20 to 25 minute talk. So I thought he covered a lot of ground, but all the ground he covered just opened up a whole lot more to, to discuss. Yeah. So yeah, as he closed out with, you know, talking about uh, one of the keys is this generation. I'm going, you know, well, that's great. So what does it mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but he did yeah. a good job of not saying it, but implying, think about what you're reading. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, uh, and he didn't bring this up either, but uh, I think that it's implied that scripture interprets scripture. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of the the astronomical perturbations, I think, that's very pertinent. And the number of times that the Old Testament prophets use those kinds of illustrations is very pertinent. I mm -hmm. think. Uh, uh, 
And then uh, his emphasis on interpreting what you're reading. And the concept, this has always bothered me a little bit more because I'm not into poetry and, and those kinds of things, but different kinds of writing mm -hmm. are interpreted in different ways. Right. And if you don't give any thought to that, it can really um, cause you to misinterpret. Right. And so I think that's a really uh, pertinent part of R.C.'s uh, right. messages uh, along this, uh, this whole Olivet Discourse. To think about what you're reading, yeah. to, and uh, and it, in thinking about reading that section of Mark in particular, since that what what he's been talking about, um, I would struggle a great deal with the idea that these things didn't happen, that Jesus thought that. Uh, I'm afraid I'm mixing up a couple of ideas here, but um, I think it was another, in fact, I know it was another RC uh, series where uh, people argue against the authentic, uh, mm -hmm. authentication of Scripture and of Jesus himself and his prophecies because those items weren't completed in that generation. Right. Uh, So we need to think about mm -hmm. what we're reading and right. look for explanations because they're not that hard to find. Yeah. Unless there's too much rebellion in your heart. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was really helpful. The the idea of interpreting scripture literally, the historic sense of that meant interpreting it in the vein with which it was written. Yeah. Trying to understand the vein in which it was written and interpreting it within that context. Yeah. So that's really that is really Highly relevant. Anything else? That's good. Really good. Ron, you want to close this in prayer? Sure. Father, we're grateful we can gather together in your name. Hear our seeds teach us about these areas of Scripture. We ask, Lord, that by your Spirit you would open our hearts and minds to understand them a little more clearly and to be able to share them with others whenever appropriate, Lord. Uh, that we might encourage people to accept Jesus Christ uh, because he is the Son of God. He did come to redeem the uh, elect and to be. King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So Lord, as we review these videos and talk about them, uh, just set it in our minds and hearts, Lord, that we'd remember these things and that we would be able to be more thoughtful uh, in how we consider some of these ideas, uh, not be too narrow-minded. I think we are able to be without much effort. Uh, anyway, 
We want to glorify you. We want to advance your kingdom. We ask for the grace to do that, and we ask that uh, you give us the opportunity and the courage, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.